How should Christians think about inflation, the market-based realities of the economy as we see it, and the threats of a rising global China? All of this and more we discuss with Dr. Peter St. Ange on the Give Me Liberty podcast, starting now. And welcome back to the Give Me Liberty podcast. I'm joined by economist at the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Peter St. Ange. Welcome, sir. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Well, I uh, am seeing a lot of things going on uh, when, when it comes to young people um, here on campus, Gen Z generation. They understand inflation because they're living it right now. We're yep. seeing inflation all over the country, but they're seeing it with gas prices. They're seeing it with the cost of insurance. They're looking at the cost of groceries and meals out, also a meals tax that they're having to pay. Our young people are, are faced and beset with all kinds of challenges due to inflation, and yet the jobs aren't keeping up. So what's really interesting is that prices are gone up. You write a lot about this at Heritage Foundation. Talk a little bit about these policies and these burdens. Who's really in charge when it comes to inflation? Is it the greedy um, food service industry? Uh, is it the, the, the greedy energy companies? Or is it really the Fed and, and government overreach? Yeah, these are interesting times we're living in. Usually it's a challenge to make the classroom material come alive. It all feels very abstract for students. And sometimes you'll have professors with these really awkward, uh, do you want to go get an ice cream or do you want to buy a textbook kind of things? And boy, I tell you right now, it's no challenge at all. I mean, you know, students are worried. Uh, they can see it right in front of them. Just the, sky, the, the price of everything is skyrocketing. Uh, a lot of them, if they're closer to graduation, they're looking with dread on going out into the job market. And for better or for worse, this is probably, uh, you know, the most effective time for that in a bad way since really the 1970s. And what got us here is really the same policy mix as uh, they pulled in the 1970s, which was way too much spending. Uh, in this case, it was really for COVID. So in order to buy the lockdowns, they had to print about $6 trillion to bribe voters into going with that. A lot of us at the time, when they came out with the lockdowns, a lot of us were really shocked. You know, we were like, why, why, why on earth are voters going for this? And, you know, part of it was Operation Fear. Everybody thought that, uh, you know, they were going to die. Uh, but then another big part of it was stimulus checks. There were a lot of people who were literally paid more to sit on the couch, which is fun, by the way. Like, if you're going to get paid to sit on the couch, there's an awful lot of people who would take that deal. So it took them, they had to move heaven and earth financially to bribe their way into that. And where did they get the money? Well, they printed it. They had the Federal Reserve print it up for them. Essentially, the way they do it is by uh, deficit spending and then the Fed uh, finances, or, or it actually stands ready to buy new government debt in order to keep uh, the prices of debt fairly low. So they pumped out about six, seven trillion. That's approximately 30 to 40% of the existing money. So there was one point where 40% uh, of all the dot or Put differently, almost one in three dollars in existence had fresh ink on it. All right, it had just been printed yeah. up since the pandemic started. So, 
economists of all stripes, including even Keynesians, know that if you print that much money, it is going to cause inflation. So long it came, we had prices almost hitting 10%. They actually crossed into double digits, but they have this cute way that they count housing where they sort of take like one twelfth of it every month because they're like, well, you know, people, some people are still in their house and they have these real kind of cute ways that they cook the numbers to take the edge off. Uh, but at any rate, we, we, you know, we were hitting more or less 10%. The Fed panicked because the most important thing in the world for the Fed is not to lose its independence. It does not care about us, okay? It cares about keeping its power. And the way it keeps its power is to keep inflation low enough that it can, um, that the people don't get angry. So the metaphor I use for that is imagine that you're a gasoline thief, okay? And your job is to sneak around your neighborhood and steal a little bit of gasoline out of all your neighbor's cars. The most important thing in that gig is don't take too much at once. If you drain somebody's account, they're gonna know, or somebody's tank, they're gonna notice. So the trick with the Fed has been keep inflation, you know, enough so that you get about 2% price rises, right? So that's something like four to 6% uh, worth of money printing. We can get into that. But anyway, they want that 2% headline price move, all right? Because they know ben, that- Is that been- Ben Bernanke's quantitative easing, like over time during the Obama era, basically, is that? Yeah, everything else they do is in service to that. So they know darn well what causes inflation, which is money printing. And so everything they do is to try to goal seek. And they have all these little, they have Operation Twist and the quantitative easing. They have all these fancy ways that they're trying to do it. Because basically what they're trying to do is to steal that without you noticing. It's almost like, you know, if the gasoline thief had all these little capers he pulls, he's got he's got the sick puppy move and then he's got, you know, so he's got these programs uh, that he announces. But the end goal is to try to get inflation around 2%. That way you're stealing the most you can get away with in the form of counterfeiting money, which is what the Fed does. So you're stealing the maximum, but the voters aren't really getting that upset about. You can kind of explain it with, ah, you know, that's just inflation happens because you got the profits and the and the workers and the whatnot. So you can kind of explain that much of it away. Problem is when you get to 10%, then voters get angry, voters get angry, Congress gets angry. At that point, the sweet deal that the Fed enjoys where they actually don't have congressional authorization for just about anything they do. They just kind of do it because they print their own budget. <laughs> So that's what they don't want to lose is that sweet little deal they have. Yeah. Okay. So you you referenced the 1970s. Now the, the the era when you had basically you know Richard Nixon resigns in shame, right? Uh, and, and then you have uh, Gerald Ford takes over the presidency. You have the OPEC countries that created the embargoes. You had high gasoline. There was actually at that time gasoline prices at the pump. It wasn't just that. Uh, prices were were oftentimes controlled, but they were rationed. And then we had inflation under Jimmy Carter in 76, kind of you know moving up to the era that gave rise to Reagan and this kind of national conservative populism of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. But are we, this is my question, are we about to repeat a cycle or is this cycle have some elements of repeat, but this is often, this is also, um, terrain that we actually haven't explored yet because 2023 still feels and looks a lot different than 1979 or 1980. Yeah, so there's two elements to that. One of them is the idiosyncratic price hikes. Okay, so in the 1970s, 
you had unique movements in oil, right? Oil had been cheap forever, and then OPEC discovered that it had, uh, you know, could kind of hold oil hostage. So you had these huge jumps in oil. Uh, and in, in every inflation, every time they print enormous amounts of money, which is what drives inflation, you've always got stuff that's going to grab the headlines. And that stuff is going to be cited as the reason for it, right? So uh, you could say, um, you know, just in this inflation we had the past couple of years, they said uh, supply chains, they said Vladimir Putin, uh, the boat got stuck in the river up there uh, out in Egypt. You know, I mean, there, there are always headline grabbing things. Uh, and those are going to be used by the regime media because they are trying to distract from what's actually causing it. So one of the bugbears at the moment is these uh, union contracts. Right? So UAW, yeah, UAW just came out, the uh, auto workers, and they wanted, I think, a 45% raise or something. They're trying to get to the point where it's about $126 per hour. That's to assemble cars, which might make you wonder why the heck you're in school because uh, – 126 times two. No, I'm sorry. It's $136 per hour. That's from the Wall Street Journal. So if you got a 2,000 hour a year, you're looking at $272,000 to yes. glue doors on a car. We might not finish this podcast. I mean, I might be <laughs> right. I mean, sound, it, out of academia. Classroom's yeah. empty. We're going to go um, put door panels on. And so, you know, that stuff always grabs the headline. But these are consequences. Either the consequences, like in the case of these um, uh, labor battles, or in the case of oil, if you didn't have background money printing, then what would have happened in the 1970s, that oil would have spiked, everybody would have had to dedicate a bunch of their budget to buying expensive gasoline, and then they would have spent less on other stuff. So the prices of other stuff would have gone back down. Okay, so normally, if you're not printing new money, then any kind of shock like that, at any time one specific price jumps, everything else is going to end up coming down. It's not going to do it immediately, but over time it's going to do it because people are going to, you know, they're going to have to spend more and more of their money on that one thing that went up. It takes a generalized inflation to get something like the OPEC price hikes that then stuck around. In fact, those stuck around forever. And so in this case, right, when we look at supply chains, for example, a couple of years ago, supply chains were really tight. It was impossible to get a refrigerator or a washing machine. You had to go buy secondhand. And at that time, I mean, those like the prices were just ridiculous. They were like doubling. But the thing is, after the supply chain crisis passed, those prices did not come back down by half. They came down 20 percent because what had happened was the you you had that background inflation that was lifting everything you had a couple things that for special reasons were kind of jumping off the charts so to answer the original question we every inflation is going to be different uh you know we we may have oil prices going up uh i don't think we're going to see anything like the change from the opec moment because that was really about them thinking they had no pricing power and then suddenly discovering that they had a ton of it. So I don't think we're going to see anything that big in oil, but we're going to see it. There's going to be a thousand stories told and, you know, they'll, they'll talk about the Nino or, I mean, it'll just be an endless series of interesting just so stories and all of them lead to the exact same conclusion, which is that, and, you know, the way the story ends is inflation went up because those are all fundamentally coming from that one fact, which is that they printed $6 trillion on a money supply that was 15 to begin with. Since 1971, Liberty University has had one mission, training champions for Christ. We've been at this for a while, 
And in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains, we have grown to be a global force. Today, Liberty runs over 100,000 students around the globe, studying across 15 colleges and schools. And among them, over 30,000 military students. Across 700 programs of study, we train as one, nurses, artists, business leaders of the future and today. Together, we work to give back through service trips, local community work, and over 500,000 volunteer hours per year. And we play just as hard as we study with 20 NCAA athletic programs and 40 club sports teams. So who are we? We are Liberty University and we train champions for Christ. Yeah, you know, th th there's a popular song, you know this song, uh, Oliver Anthony has made his rounds. He's actually here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Nice. Uh, we're, we're operating out of Lynchburg, Virginia. That's He's just, right. uh, about He's just down the road, yeah. yeah. That's right. So, north, you know, Richmond, north of Richmond. Yep. And one of the things he mentions is how the dollar is not worth anything yeah. anymore. And uh, it, what's ironic is that if you go outside of these massive, sprawling sort of urban populations where, like you say, you know, you, you, you know, people couch surfed, um, you know, probably played video games. They took a check. They they went on. Um, I forget the name of the different investment apps, you know, uh, back in 2020 and 2021. They bought some Bitcoin or some other things, rode that thing up and down. The markets were um, haywire with all this loose money, right? And so it overinflated stock pricing mm -hmm. across the board. People were buying into, oh goodness, I'm trying to remember. Game, GameStop uh, was the epic one. Yeah, yeah GameStop right. was, oh, that's a perfect example. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned GameStop. So like, it, it, and there was no, you know, in terms of their balance sheet mm -hmm. and their profits right. and, and all of that, none of this was based on actual economics, right. you know, or, or, or market theory. It was just basically we have an excess of money and then it overinflated the market and it was running hot for a period of time. And then as soon as those prices went up, people sold and then immediately they came crashing down. Right. And this went on and on and on. But, you know, you see where peep this disparity with the people that are living in the rural places and these in these various enclaves across the country, they grow their own food. You know, they live off the land. You know, um, they don't need to make um, you know a hundred thousand a year in order to exist. They live really, really well on on meager and cheap beans because uh, because they can again they can live off the land. Right. Um, but it's there is almost no consideration um, that the elites have for these individuals. It's as if these policies are designed to further create economic disparities in order to um, essentially have a, a class of people that are mm -hmm. constantly dependent upon the government yeah. uh, to bail them out. So in the United Auto Workers, you have that example. You also have the example of um, the mayor of Chicago suggesting that they have government-run grocery stores yeah. uh, You know, in order to what? Solve for another government problem right. that they created uh, with energy prices and food prices. Yeah, it's endless. And, you know, this is one of the frustrating things is that all of, uh, essentially all of the evidence that the left uses to attack markets and free exchange and, you know, uh, individual control over your life and, and, and over your, uh, or your economic life, almost everything that they use to attack that is created by 
a socialistic institution known as the government. So in the case of income inequality, that has been, you know, really one of the rallying cries of the left my whole life. And they're absolutely correct. Income inequality is soaring in this country. And the reason is because the Federal Reserve and the federal government. It is the way that they structure incentives. It is the way that the Fed prints money and pumps it into the economy. The way they do it is not by handing it out to people. The way they do it is through asset markets. And rich people own assets. Second way they do it is subsidizing borrowing. And the overwhelming amount of borrowing in America, as in all countries, is rich people. Rich people borrow because they have credit. So if you are cutting um, borrowing rates to half what they should be, you are transferring money. You're transferring it from all of the dollars in existence, where you've essentially poured water into the wine and diluted all of the dollars that exist. And, you know, those are going to be disproportionately held by poorer people because poor people have bank accounts. They don't have stock funds, right? So you're going to be diluting that. You're going to take the proceeds and you're either going to subsidize rich borrowers or you're going to be pouring it directly into asset markets, in which case it's going to make uh, uh, rich people even richer. Uh, if you look, for example, at housing, right? So if you buy a $10 million house, a couple of years ago, you could get a 3% mortgage on it, which was insane. That was a negative 5% interest rate, right? Because inflation was right. almost 8%. You were paying three. You were literally getting paid 5% of a $10 million house. The rich get yeah. richer because the government is chasing constantly these low interest rates. The reason they're doing that is because they want the economy to have a tissue fire in time for the next election. The end result is that the middle class, the working class, they get wrecked. The rich people get taken care of. And then some of that is sliced off and passed over to buy votes so that they can get their ruling coalition. And always the guys in the middle are the ones who suffer. Mm. You just described our American political system basically in 2023. <laughs> I mean, this is we're living this reality right now. Yep. I mean, yeah, it's so true. I, I want to turn our attention because I to to China. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Everything I'm reading, Wall Street Journal, um, other economic indicators, looks as though China has grown what they're going to grow. Uh, you know, in terms of building infrastructure. Uh, they, they, they built, you know, what is it? How many high rises do they have per one individual in yeah. China? I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. Like everybody, everybody has a high rise in China. Nobody lives in them, but everybody owns one. You know, it's, it's crazy. Um, what, what is happening with China? What is that going to look like, uh, in terms of our economic future theirs? Um, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're, we heard the announcement a little over a year ago about BRICS, uh, but that, that's been going on for 10 years now. You know, Brazil, Russia, South Africa, India, China, you know, coming together and forming a, a rival currency to the U.S. dollar. Um, while they're developing nations and they're not as strong economically, they contain half the world's population that we should consider that. I don't know what that all means, but I want to talk to you as an economist. How do we look at China? Are they going to be more of a militaristic threat if their economy sags and they they go into negative growth? Um, you know, what does it look like for U.S.-China relations and the overall economic forecast? Yeah, so China is definitely going through a rough patch. They did a sort of stronger version of what we did, where they had. Uh, 
trillions of dollars, basically easy money going to political favorites. That especially went to the green industries. Uh, there were certain industries that the Chinese leadership identified as uh, industries of the future. As always, industrial planners suck at it. Uh, they weren't good at it in the Soviet Union. You know, if you had a PhD in the Soviet Union, you were going to get hired by the government. You were going to get put in the planning department. They took all of the, you know, smartest people they could find yeah. and they put them in there and they made an absolute mess of it. Uh, planning does not work. So China did a lot of that. They steered tons of money into especially. By the, yeah. by the way, PhD stands for permanent head damage. It um, is true. Just kidding. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not give PhDs control. This country's had one PhD president, um, which was uh, Wilson. Yeah. Who started oh. World War One, created the Fed. Uh, locked up political dissidents. Uh, <laughs> yeah, segregated the military. Right. Never ever put a PhD in charge of the country. Okay, back to China. So they did that. They screwed up. They put the PhDs in charge. They had the uh, wise and omniscient planners run everything. So now what they've got is all these factories building crap that nobody needs. They have massive oversupply in automobiles. For example, they've got about 10 million more cars than they sell. So we're going to have an absolute tsunami of free cars coming our way, uh, which is nice if you're a consumer. It's not so great if you happen to be a manufacturer. Uh, and then one of the other things they did was to try to steer all of that capital into building. So I've got a friend who lives out there. I think he's in Ningbo, a secondary city. And he said that the bus stop on his you know, route, he had rebuilt that five times. Okay, so the first time it was kind of run down, so they refreshed and he said, okay, this is a legitimate, you know, use of money. Second time they upgraded it, so I had an electric billboard. The third time they made it as so much metal, it's like you could crash into it with a tank. Uh, and then and then they did it one more time, just like for absolutely no reason. They, they tore down the tank-like infrastructure and built it again. Because what happens in China is that you, as a local government official, you have to report a certain amount of GDP growth. Or a certain amount of economic yeah. activity. And the easiest way to do that is just to tear up roads and rebuild them. I mean, it is just enormous. Uh, literally, it's digging holes and filling them. And of course, that steers capital away from the private sector. Like what China should have done, for example, is if they said we have too much money and the GDP is not growing, maybe take the taxes off the manufacturers so that they can produce more. But, you know, they're not, they're not run by... Uh, by free marketers, unfortunately, in China. So they're going through a rough patch now. They've got overcapacity. The housing is overbuilt. That's now collapsing. 70% yeah. of Chinese uh, household savings are in uh, real estate, a lot of it investment real estate yeah. that's held empty. So the Chinese are upset. They are going to go through a rough patch. Having said, before we take a victory lap, we have all the same problems. We don't do yep. them quite as quick as China because, you know, we do have a decentralized political system, but we are committing every stupidity they are. Uh, the scale is not as big as it is in China, but, you know, particularly the EV. The rule of thumb is that if you can only build a factory because taxpayers gave you the money, it's not going to make money. Uh, so we are going to have a lot of that right here at home. We've seen a lot of shenanigans in housing because of the cheap money that our Federal Reserve pumped out. Uh, so, you know, the, the people who sort of say that China's uh, finished and we are going to emerge victorious again, you could argue that China is beating us down the drain at the moment. Uh, but we've been at this for a long time. We're very, very good at circling the drain. 
China, on the other hand, does have a fairly responsive system where when they make a mistake, they, you know, send the uh, the people who screwed up out to uh, prison camps to relearn humility and they hire a new gang. So I would not be surprised if China comes rearing back in a couple of years. But at the moment, they're going yeah. through a rough patch. And, you know, in terms of military, if President Xi uh, ends up being threatened because of his current failures. He's got a lot of internal opposition. He's had a really heavy hand. He's been purging his predecessors, guys, in a way that that's really never hasn't happened in China yeah. since. Um, since we Mao. saw the video from mm-hmm. a year ago, right? Former yeah. president being taken out. Yeah. you know, escorted yeah, out. And yeah, Absolutely. yeah. And you know that was shocking to them. Um, in those kinds of events in China, you don't have surprises. Okay, nobody gets sick at the podium. <laughs> like, uh, so yeah, that was pretty amazing. And so it is conceivable that if she gets enough opposition, he could decide that he needs some Hail Mary and he could go for some risk like Taiwan, invading Taiwan. But fundamentally, unless he's really desperate, he's not going to go for that because the risks are too large, right? If you're winning the game, you don't, you don't take a risk, right? You just, you just kind of run down the clock. Um, so that's China. And then in terms of BRICS, that, so the idea there is that all of these um, countries that are sort of outside of the American sphere of influence are going to get together and gang up against us and declare independence, uh, economic independence from us. You know, the first of all, the countries are kind of a set of basket cases. Um, you know, Brazil has hyperinflation every so often. Russia has hyperinflation and they invade random neighbors. They got a lot of issues. <laughs> uh, China, you know, is going through a rough patch. Who's the last one? India. India is a mess. So it's kind of a rogues gallery. But I think what they're aiming at, or what makes the grouping interesting, is that there's about 50 countries that want to join in that BRICS grouping. And I think it's a reflection of the fact that there is a lot of worldwide frustration with the U.S., specifically how the U.S. uses our economic heft to bully countries. Now, in a sense, all countries do that. China certainly does that. If China doesn't like the things your country says, they will, say, deny market access. Uh, they right. to Lithuania, for example. So all countries do throw their weight around. I think what's a little bit frustrating as an American is that the crap we squander our power on is just embarrassing. You know, it's like, um, I don't know, supporting marginalized LGBT communities in rural Afghanistan or something. I'm, is is, is that the, really by the what way, you spend your power on? By the way, you just hit the nail on the head. This was something we talked about, you know, two years ago with the old Afghan withdrawal. And I can't blame some of the some of the folks that wanted to see us gone because this is what our State Department was doing with with our tax dollars. Uh, They were they weren't actually proliferating or or, you know, they were they were basically trying to make them look like the, you know, the gender studies program at Harvard University. Yeah, Yeah, bingo. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny, you know, because the left gives lip service to this whole, you know, we have to tolerate other people and we have to see from their eyes and, you know, different cultures. But boy, when the rubber hits the road. So you're looking for a university that's perfect for you, a school that has anything you could possibly need. Anything? You want a place that has the programs you want to study. <laughs> Maybe a few more, just in case you change your mind. I think I'm going to sign up for the fashion design program. All right. Place with state-of-the-art facilities. I mean, look at this campus. And who doesn't love big town sports? And great recreational activities. Okay, now we're on a roll. Somewhere you can hike, slide, 
strike, shoot, climb, eat, and most importantly, eat. You want a place that takes you to space? Okay, maybe not, but we can teach you how to fly, or pastor a church, or run a business. And all that with a great view? Yeah, I think I know a place. So anyway, there's a lot of frustration, I think, right now with the U.S. The the bullying, um, the marginalizing, the politicization, you know, a lot of it is on green topics or union topics or things that fundamentally could uh, cause a lot of problems in these countries. And then China, meanwhile, their basic approach to other countries is to say, look, uh, we don't really care what you do domestically, like literally, because, I mean, China, of course, has slave labor camps, so... <laughs> It would be a bit rich for them to complain about other countries. But anyway, they come in and explicitly say, we really don't care what you do at home. Uh, you know, we want you to be stable so that you'll buy Chinese uh, products and so that you will be a reliable source of raw materials. So their deal is that they parachute in and say, we're going to help you get rich. We want yeah. you to be rich. And they do genuinely. They, they want Africa to be rich so that Africa will buy Chinese stuff. And the deal they cut, they say, and in return, we're going to take this oil field that you are not using because you've had a civil war for 30 years and it's all bombed out. So we're gonna take that oil field and we're gonna put a we're gonna put a railroad, a pipeline, we're gonna develop that thing for you, okay? And, and we're gonna do like a 30 year contract. We're gonna give you X billion dollars a year. All right, you don't have to do anything. You can just sit back and relax, okay? So we're gonna do all that for you. It is a heck of a deal for these countries. Larry Summers, the former treasury secretary, he said yeah. he goes around Africa and he talks to diplomats. And what they say is when China comes, they come with a big checkbook. And when the U.S. comes, they come with a lecture. So we are committing unforced errors. We are chasing countries off the dollar. Uh, they are legitimately leaving. You know, a big mistake was uh, seizing Russia's central bank dollars when they invaded Ukraine. Of course, it was terrible to, to invade their neighbor. But the issue here is... You know, even during the Cold War, we never ever did that because you want your enemies to be reliant on you. So we had hot wars going on in five continents with the Soviet Union, proxy wars. We never seized their dollars because we were looking at the big picture. This administration ain't doing that. They are chasing yeah. headlines. They're trying to, uh, they're creating clickbait for their, you know, activist base. And so they're ending up eroding the dollars, chasing countries off the dollar, and they're chasing countries into the Chinese orbit where forget human rights. I mean, China will pay you no matter what. They really don't care. Right. Now, you, you nailed it. I, I, I totally agree. And the, the problem is right now, those that are running the State Department, Department of Justice, these are, these are truly the purple-haired activists, yes. right? That, yep. uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was, hey, you know, go, go, go get a shower and get a job, you know, uh, stop, now, stop this. Uh, now they're running Occupy the world. Movement. <laughs> that's, that's right. And now they yeah. are, they did, they yeah. actually did go get a job working for the government. Uh, it's truly sad. Yeah. It's a wreck. So, uh, Dr. St. Ange, where can we follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E. That's where everybody is. If you're not on, uh, be square or, uh, get over there. Uh, and yeah. then also, of course, follow Heritage. We've got a lot of really good economists now. Uh, so we're, yes, you do. we're making a lot of progress in Washington. Well, we certainly appreciate you stopping by the Give Me Liberty podcast, giving your thoughts. We hope to have you back on. Yeah, definitely. It was a joy. Awesome. Forward. All right, folks, stick around for final thoughts. 
Hey, folks, thank you for watching the Give Me Liberty podcast. Please like and subscribe and share with a friend. Only a true friend shares the gift of the Give Me Liberty podcast. I'm so grateful for the conversation with Dr. Peter St. Ange at the Heritage Foundation. One of the realities we understand when it comes to economics and economic life is that there is a hard objective reality that corresponds not only with the science of supply and demand on the X and Y plane, but the moral and spiritual realities of God's universe that are inescapable. We quote him often, but Abraham Kuyper once eloquently said, there is not one square inch in the domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That applies to everything from Sunday worship in church to the marketplace, to all civil and civic places, city hall, public libraries, the county courthouse, and even all those massive federal buildings there in Washington, D.C. God is sovereign over all of it. God is sovereign over all economic life. And when it comes to economic life, there are all kinds of value sets that determine the best economic system. We certainly have big economic systems like capitalism, market-based capitalism, government-based capitalism. We have socialism and communism that are almost discussed interchangeably. But there was a big difference between the state socialism of, say, Mussolini and the state communism of Stalin, for example. And the modern day examples of state run capitalism, where the Chinese Communist Party owns the lion's share of the profits, the businesses, the land, the real estate, all of that over the Chinese people. We see that even in the West, there are differences in market based economic systems and monetary policies. You look, for instance, back at the history of John Maynard Keynes, who dominated both the British system and later the American system that advocated strongly for government intervention into the market market economy. Keynes believed in leverage. He believed in an economic policy that could stem the tide of recession and depression. How? By government fiat, printing more money, controlling the money supply. And his influence was great upon the Western countries who basically follow the Keynesian approach of deficit spending and inflation. John Maynard Keynes once said, in the long run, we're all dead. And there was a bit of irony to that statement because while that is true, a system that benefits in that moment, any system that sustains huge deficits and debt cannot perpetuate itself and it eventually will die. The nations with the greatest debt around the world have all bought into the Keynesian economic philosophy. That is why our conversation about economics today is so very important. We must also recognize as Christians that there is a stewardship principle that is inherently spiritual, moral, and natural, given that the world God has created abides by his laws. While Jesus and Paul warn of the nihilistic approach of eating, drinking, and being merry, for tomorrow we will die, we are also instructed to be generous and wise with worldly wealth, to provide for our families, and to leave an inheritance for our children. All of these things are important to God, and they are a mark of true Christian stewardship. Thank you so much for joining the Give Me Liberty podcast. 
Until next time, God bless you.